You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain, tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together, ain't gonna worry about stormy. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the door. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast in case the drug dealer from next door knocks on your door and wants a cup of sugar for his meth lab. So it is podcast. You will miss nothing. Um, Kelly That's Whitworth. That's a terrible introduction talking about. It's not a terrible introduction. Neighbours like that. What do you, you think, got a, Margaret? You, you got a, <laughs> Does he get away with that? Oh, yeah. He gets away with it, doesn't he? <laughs> Look, Kelly Whitworth, you may be the world's greatest producer, but you're not a, a wordsmith, all right? Yeah. <laughs> you say so. Margaret and I are the word. We're speaking to Margaret Ryan, part two. Now, those of you who remember, this little human dynamo waltzed into the studio, well, actually tiptoed in, about two months ago, and we got halfway through her life. We were out of time, and I said to Margaret, you need to come back. That was very kind of you, Joe. Really <laughs> no, it wasn't kind of me. She, fo- of, yeah. she forced me. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I've never been you know, kind to anybody, oh, not even animals. Yeah, you're just you're a so terrible person. Thank you. You thank are you. so easy to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> what did we talk about last time? Well, we, we talked about your life memory. in, in, in uh, Papua New Guinea, yeah. the fact that you were doing work in Carlton, that you were still in contact with Papua New Guinea. But I was really, really, really interested when you dropped the P word, palliative care I, yeah. and your and your uh, important role in beginning palliative care nets network in victoria yeah so how did, how did that all start how how it actually started joe was up uh, i was actually still up in papua new guinea and our um, <clears throat> leader of the Mercy Order came up to New Guinea and she was telling me what was happening down in in Melbourne. And one of the things she mentioned was that um, th- uh, that um, John McGee, who was the real estate agent McGee O'Callaghan and Girl, that John had offered money to set up palliative care in Victoria uh, because he was very distressed about his doctor friend who died. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. You, you are excused. Yeah, I, I, I excuse you. You, you, you want to uh, cough? You can cough. So, so, yes. so that was the story. And um, and uh, now, hang on. she was telling what, what, me what year was this? This was nineteen seventy. 
1980 it would have been 1980, 1980. Mm. and um and there was no uh, at that stage no freestanding home based palliative care in Victoria Kath Kingsbury was just about on the verge to do it a city mission in Fitzroy uh, and I didn't know about that at the time, but but uh, talking on the veranda up in ITB up on the north coast of New Guinea, um, when she said that, I said to her that um, you wouldn't put that money into an inpatient unit, would you? She said, well, that's what they're thinking. Uh, I said, I don't think so. I said, if you're looking at Melbourne in the 1980s, you have all the ageing World War II immigrants from Europe and other places, and they want to stay home. Mm-hmm. So the, what we need to do is we need to meet that need and we need to go out to those suburbs and try to help them. She said, what a great idea, would you come home? You said no. <laughs> <laughs> so so I thought, well, I'll come home. Yeah, right. So I came back and... Mm. Um, and met with uh, John McGee and with his good friend uh, Peter Norris, who was his lawyer, and um, we formed a little committee. And they were very happy about the idea of going out further out. And I really wanted to go either to Broadmeadows, where I had worked before. That's right. You mentioned that yep, in the last to interview. Sunshine. Mm. And, um, and when we talked um, with other people, we decided we would go to Sunshine. And so, in uh, so I was ready to start, and they said, "Oh no, oh no, we want you to go overseas first and look at all the home hospices around overseas and see that development, and then come back." So I went to England and Scotland and Ireland and Canada and America, and came home. And I remember flying into Sydney, thinking, "I'm half dead now." <laughs> <laughs> I think I've finished already. Yes. And, and then waking up the next morning and think, no, what the hell are you going to do now? <laughs> so were you a bit confused by what you saw? Was it different in all the places you went to? They or? were all setting up home care, home-based palliative right. care. Now, before before we go on with the story, yeah. I just want people to understand a few yeah. definitions because there's still a lot of confusion. Yeah. A lot of people um, confuse palliative care with euthanasia, and they still do yeah. for yeah. a variety of reasons. Can you tell us what palliative care is? Yeah, yeah. Palliative care is is not entirely separate from general medicine. What it is is emphasis on the relief of pain and of symptoms and to try to create comfort as a high priority. And it, it, it started in an era where cure was the predominant uh, emphasis and so people who are clearly in their last month or two of life to the ordinary layperson were still getting a whole lot of diagnostic treatment and uh, I would get people who were um, terribly emaciated and clearly dying but bruised from all the investigations and whatever and people being put onto x-ray tables who are in excruciating pain mm. And and so it needed an, an emphasis to say that pain matters and symptoms matter and the person's morale matters and also that of their family so that holding them in for investigations when they want to be home is something that we could, could consider quite seriously as, as something we, we really do need to address. So I saw a classic of um, a, a woman who was in... Um, she was in... A, 
leading hospital. Uh, she had a CA bronchus from the smoking and she had a low sodium level was the problem. So they were retaining her in hospital because that would have dropped her blood pressure. And they were trying to build up her sodium levels and doing constant blood tests, whatever. And I could see when I looked at her that that kind of, you see that very passive lying in bed that tells you this person has given up. And I looked at her lying quite still in the bed and I said, no, you're not going to die. It's not going to happen. Um, so what shall we do? And she said, I want to go home. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So I said, look, I'll get you home today. But please don't die on me. So so I um, rang the consultant and just said, you've got a serious problem. She's going to die just from the morale of the situation. And he said, well, we can't get her sodium levels up. I said, look, I'll tell you what, if I can take her home, I will test her sodium levels for you every day. I'll get the blood taken and I'll do it. Okay, okay, so we take her home. That night she sends a hubby out to get dim sims, mm. um, potato chips, mm. um, everything else. Natural, natural <laughs> elevation of salt. <laughs> so in, in these days we give them Florinef. That's right. And that would push up their sodium levels but yeah. then it was that's right yeah so basically palliative care is about controlling about symptoms first. yeah the person the disease second yeah the person first. first so and, yeah i think in the um, 80s and i remember i was involved in the uh, legislation yeah. which went through in the late 80s in the victorian parliament because it wasn't clear whether patients had a right to refuse treatment at that stage yes and remember that one of my patients who um who uh, died during that period, there was a coroner's case, and that was the impetus to actually clarify the legislation to give people the opportunity to refuse treatment. And I think a lot of doctors felt at that stage they had no option. So, you know, I understand. It was one of those situations, but Parliament resolved that question in 88. So... But actually, if I may just interrupt, mm. I actually made a presentation to that standing Did committee. Did you? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And what um, did you say? And basically what I was saying was that, that I had that stage had been working in palliative care for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I also had taken a keen interest in the voluntary euthanasia mm-hmm. uh, society, the VS, and yes. I had been to their meetings. And uh, what I was saying was that, that essentially both groups are looking at the very same problem. And what we are looking at. And I said, I am very sympathetic to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not one versus the other. I'm very sympathetic to them. The issue, though, is how do we handle the distress that people are looking mm-hmm. at? Mm-hmm. You know, and they kind of looked up really shocked. I think they expected <laughs> that I would be anti. Anti, the, yeah, but being a, being a Catholic the nun, they thought you'd, you know. Yeah, you'd, yeah, they've you'd, got no you'd, reason to be anti them. No. You know, I'm sorry no. for them. Yeah, yeah, I really am. And mm. and they looked sad. Mm. You know, mm. they looked, when you looked around the group at the meeting, they mm. looked so sad. Mm. And, um, and uh, you know, so they're looking at the very same thing I look at, and I try very hard to keep my staff from getting sad. You know, it's, it's it yeah. Is, it is, it's about, yeah. it's, I mean... <sighs> Dying, I don't think most people realise, because we tend to sanitise death in our society, unlike, you know, more traditional groups. I don't think people realise how difficult it can be, the dying process, not just for the relatives and the friends, but the person themselves, when all the complications set in, you know, like pain, vomiting, not being able to, diarrhoea, being, being... you know, wetting yourself constantly, having a catheter put in, all these horrible yes. things that don't happen all the time but can yeah. happen. 
which no. make it such a very difficult process for the person who's dying. Yeah. A, lo- a lot of the work in palliative care, though, is anticipation. Mm-hmm. It really is. So what do you mean by that? What I mean by anticipation is that, is that, that you have a team that can go in and look at a person and say, it is very likely that this is the next happening. Mm-hmm. And to be ready. So, for instance, we had people who had motor neurone disease on the program. And we would have already the oxygen ready for them if they needed it, if they needed it. And I always kept morphine in the fridge. I don't know if you could do that now, but I kept morphine in their fridge. I think think I'd get you arrested now. Yeah. We put you away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we put you away. <laughs> the drug pushing none. Yeah, yeah I can see I it there. Headlines I, in the Herald Sun. Yeah, I thought. Well, I can't. I can't carry morphine around. Footscray Sunshine Killer in those years. No, no, in those years. I know. I know those years. <laughs> I, I, I used to do a bit of locum work in the yeah. night light overnight locum work in the yeah. uh, late seventies. Oh, and I used to. I used to put my. Um, medical equipment in a fishing tackle box because yeah. nobody would know that I was carrying all that stuff and you're the same, obviously. Yeah, and yet those very same families, those kids, they'd be the very ones that help you, yeah. you know? Yeah, they, they would. They, they, they really would. were. Yeah. And um, yeah. I can remember a very funny story of um, looking after a um, guy who was um, he was a shop steward with one of the big unions mm. and he died um, and they had a, um, the funeral in the funeral parlour and they had a, I still call Australia home as the going out thing. Yep. And, uh, but that, that family were in a bit of strife with the cops. Mm. Uh, so they came up to see me and they said, look, you've been so good to us, we want to do some fundraising. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And they said, well, yeah, we'd really like to help you. So that's terrific. And um, they said, look, we're going to have a, um, a, um, a bowling alley afternoon for you. We're right. going to raise some money in the bowling alley. Mm-hmm. Do you need some prizes? Oh, no, no, we've got the cups. <laughs> I saw that wink, Margaret. I don't think the, I don't. The listeners saw that wink, that naughty wink. <laughs> so anyway, they uh, they were all going to look after it. So look, they were fantastic. But anyway, wow. they they're having the saucy sizzle outside, and the cop cars going around watching them. <laughs> yeah. And I said to them, "You're going to give the cops a sausage?" And they said, <laughs> no way. No, <laughs> no way. way. That's fair enough. Yeah, but fantastic people. All right. Now that you yeah. explain what palliative care is, and it's about yeah. anticipation, yeah. and is there a process in dying? When you talk about anticipation, absolutely. Uh, could yeah, you, could abs- you explain that process? Yeah, absolutely. What it looks like is is there there is no kind of slow, gradual decline as such. It it's like a person has a, a wave up and then a deeper one down, and then a wave up and a deeper one down. So you're looking at a decline that is like a, you know, the up and down of a wave. And that's what we're watching is looking at the the decline as it comes um, and not being disillusioned by seeing an improvement. You're looking at, you expect the improvement, but you know that it's actually going. So what you're looking at is the trajectory over the six months mm-hmm. and and how to handle that. And, um, and also looking at, one of the important things was also to look at the relatives because I could always tell how serious the patient was by looking at the person who answered the door. They would tell me whether it was seriously 
somebody seriously terminally ill or in the early stages from the look of the tiredness on the face of the person who answered the door. Mm. So so often the one of the key things is keeping your carer as well as you can, as you would know, Chuck. Yes, yes. And and so making sure the doctor is also checking the carer as much as the person who mm. is the one who was officially the, the palliative care patient. Right. Um, because I had a situation in Braybrook one time where um, the carer, the, the lovely woman, she died under the clothesline trying to look after her husband. Been, yes. And, and it's very common. Yeah. I mean, I, I deal with yeah. people with profound physical disabilities after trauma. Yeah. And it's yeah. so many times... Yeah. The carer who's devoted 15, 20, 30 years dies before yeah. the right. patient or, you know, their, their, their partner, and that makes it extraordinarily difficult for both of them because yeah. that person will be institutionalised normally because yeah. there's no, no primary care. Let's get back. You had your, me- you had your meeting. Hmm. How did you go about setting up this part of care? Oh, how we went about setting up. <laughs> mm. I mean, we don't want to depress people by talking about dying constantly. <laughs> Let's talk about something positive. You setting up this, this palliative care. Well, we rented a house in Sunshine mm. and I... I, I hope you, you got a discount. Uh, no, no one. No. Oh, we might have a very kind estate agent, but anyway... <laughs> I well, did know. you tell them what you wanted I didn't to know do? How much, I didn't know how much money we paid for it. It was none of my business. But, but I went up to the local hospital, which was the now the Sunshine General Hospital, mm. and in those years it wasn't open. It was built as um, as they built a big square section of the hospital that was supposed to be the training school, and then they were going to build a great big unit out the back. But the money had been defunded meantime, so they had this square building out the front and nothing in it. So when was, I walked this, in, was it was during, carpeted. Was this during the Kennet era? It sounds this, like it was during the Kennet era. It was stopped during Kennet. Yeah, um, but, yeah. but at this stage, uh, it hmm. was it, we, we were past that and hmm. were up to um, John Kane, Kane Jr. Right, Jr. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're thinking about it again, and they'd appointed a manager. And I walked into the house, into this building, all carpeted, air-conditioned, and upstairs the manager's office. And I said, I'm setting up palliative care for the Western region here. Might I have an office, please? (laughs) He said, how many do you want? (laughs) (laughs) You got your office. So anyway, I got I got a we had no money. I got a card table, a a table, kitchen table from Vinnie's, and Mm. and I set up with the inside of a of a set of chest of drawers, you know, something. And uh, he comes around. He says, "Oh, good God!" He says, "I'll get your desk." And and anyway, he got the desk for me. And we started with just two sisters initially, Mm -hmm. uh, expecting that only a few people would probably like Catholic, you know, formerly Catholic. Um, hospice unit, mm. we were absolutely, absolutely blown off our feet with the demand. So we finished up asking for more staff. Um, I went pleading to Tom Roper. I went pleading to Nell Blewett. And in at the end of the two, we had to go for two years with very restricted patient numbers because we couldn't deal with it mm-hmm. and, and explain to them what was happening. And they funded us at the end of December 83 as the first home palliative care service in Australia that received federal funding, funding and state funding. Right, first, right, one. first one. And, and, and then we just grew really rapidly. We, mm. we started off having a strict boundary around municipalities and that was devastating to have to explain to patients, you know, to a family, you're two blocks out, I'm very sorry. Yeah. 
Mm. We just can't do it to our staff. We haven't got enough staff. And then uh, growing, by the time I'd left, we were in five municipalities. Mm. Now the program covers the whole of the western side of Melbourne from Werribee to the airport. Yes. It's really, it's mm. and, and takes in Parkville and all the whole area. So yeah. how many years were you in the program? I was a decade in it. A decade. And a lot of that was... How, how wearing was that on you? Oh, it was terrible. Physically I, I, and mentally, because you're dealing with people. I mean, look you're up at, at night time. Yeah. So we're up at night time That's a lot right. of the time. Up at night yeah. and um, driving mm. out to people and mm. and dealing with very distressing situations mm. uh, almost all the time. And how much trouble did you actually get getting medical practitioners to do home visits? Uh, in in the beginning, the older doctors told us that 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 in that area, in the early years, they had always slept in the clinic, one of them at night time. Right. So there's always somebody there. But they said a generation coming on now won't be doing that. So what, what would happen would be that the GPs would be out there during the day. They would have a little bit of time between the end of the morning clinic and the afternoon clinic to go and see some, some people. Yes. Mm. But anybody calling in after that, they were banked up to the locum service which started at 6 o'clock. That's right. We had three doctors, if I remember rightly at that time, three doctors across the entire western region That's from right. Werribee to yeah, the airport yeah, yeah. as the locum service. I would have been one of those locals. Right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I know what it was like. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. Some of them were fantastic doctors. They were studying postgraduate. Mm. Some of them were almost unemployable. That's you know, right. it was, yeah, a, it was yeah. a big, big stand. I was one of the ones who was almost unemployable. unemployable. That's right. <laughs> You recognise me. I've been, I've been exposed. So, so, so what I used, what I used to do for the doctors and the ambulance and the rest was I, one of those lovely families had given me a proper medical case. Right. So I used to leave the medical case with the stethoscope on in the doorway if, if the ambulance was coming. Yes. And just direct them to the patient. Not and they say think, to them. yeah, they think you're the doctor. That's right. So you get them. Out, out into the oh, you, you know yeah. every trick in the book. Yeah, and don't bring your don't bring your uh, don't bring your intensive care ambulance. We don't want resuscitation. It's exactly, here, you yeah. say. Oh, yeah. look, yeah, you ring triple O, and you say, oh, it's a two. You've always got yeah. to say it's a two-hour waiting period yeah. because if you say it's an emergency, right. it'll be sirens and lights. Yeah. So you've and, got, and you've got to be realistic. That's right. Sometimes we just put them in a taxi and say that's go right. because the Western General would be. Backed up. That's right. Uh, you go to St Vincent's, you might get a quicker chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. quite it's quite distressing because we've got we've got the same issues now. You know, you yeah. call up a hospital, you say I got a patient, he's a, he or she's a regular, you know them, no beds, we're on bypass. Yeah, but if you don't call them, yeah, and you send them in yeah. by private transport, they and if they're well, you know, half well enough to survive yeah. private transport. Well, the hospital has got no option but to yeah. treat them when they get to the accident emergency department. It's just terrible the tricks you've got to play to keep oh, things right. going. It's terrible. So, what what made you leave after a decade? Did somebody tap on you? Did the mother superior tap you on the shoulder and say, "There's another project oh. for you, Margaret"? Or no, did you decide you had far, enough? Far from it. Far from it. I I actually uh, remember that at the end of '89, I was absolutely exhausted, and a friend offered me a caravan up at um, up on the Murray, mm-hmm. and I was up there and I slept for the whole week. I remember I bought the Age on the Saturday, and I still was trying to read it on the following Friday. But anyway, in the meantime, a car arrived. And they said to me, your brother's just died overseas. Right. And he was much younger than me. I'd had nursed, I'd looked after him as a baby, you know, and he had died in Japan. 
and in tragic circumstances. So I had to come home and then fly out to Japan with my sister and deal with the whole situation. And on the plane on the way back, I thought this is where it stops. That um, if I go back, I am so out of my tree that I wouldn't be able to handle stuff. Mm-hmm. And right. so uh, it's not fair to them. They've, they've got they've out all day with this terrible stuff. They need someone who's very peaceful to come home to. Mm. So I said, enough, enough. So I finished and um, and uh, then went up to Balgo for a little bit with the Aborigines. Now let's get let's just yeah. one step backwards. Yeah. Do you think people during that period understood the concept of uh, you know people involved in healthcare, especially those involved in that. Yeah. Intense type of relationship because there's a relationship you develop yeah. with people, you know, especially if they're dying. Um, do you think people understood what post-traumatic stress disorder was in those days? Oh, um, no, we didn't. We didn't. I, I, what I had realised was that I had terrific staff, really top staff, very dedicated people, and my role in charge of that was to put the brakes on. So. I discovered that my role was actually not about um, encouraging staff as I thought it might have been when I started. It was the opposite. It was to say, I want you off work on time. Mm -hmm. If you're not off on time, uh, I'll let it go the first time. But after that, you're to phone me if you have any reason not to be home. And, and we would endeavour as far as we could to wait back so that when people came off the road, there was somebody to debrief them before they went home to the family. Because what I was conscious of was the consequences of this is going to be a broken marriage. You know, if the partner comes home from work, he or she is tired and the staff member comes home and wants to talk all about the dying people, it's not going to work. You yeah, know, it's going to work. be very serious. So yeah. so we... we um, I, I realised that was my role, yeah, well, but I wasn't very good at doing it for myself. Um, well, that's always the way, isn't it? <laughs> it's always the way. Now, Margaret, while you're laughing, I've got to remind people what's happening. This is radical. Yeah. Astra- otherwise, Kelly's going to kill me because yeah. it's live and she can't put a little thing in the middle, you know, because yeah, yeah. she's so professional. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. Radical Australia and Community Radio 3CR. Yeah. 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 Uh, Kelly Whitworth, the world's greatest producer, is pushing all the Good, buttons. Yeah. Joseph Toscano, the show pony, yeah. is speaking to Sister Margaret yeah. Ryan yeah. regarding her extraordinary yeah. journey yeah. through yeah. life. Something to show you, Chuck. Well, it is radio. I'll keep talking. Margaret's got up now. She's uh, she's going to show me something from her bag. Now, how come we haven't got a television program, Kelly? What's going on? What do you mean? Well, can't we make this into a television show, a one-hour television show? That would spoil the mystery. Ah. We'll come to this, Margaret. You yes. sit down. I was going to come to this. I've done my research on you. I remember what you told me last time. And you did tell us about this. No, no. Though we didn't really look at it, but I'm not going to look at it yet. We've still got another 25 minutes of chatting. Oh, you leave me in suspense. She's only the producer. You don't care what she thinks, you know, as long as she can press the buttons and and does all the great things so people can listen to you, Margaret. We don't give her no acknowledgement. PTS... PTSD, well, that's it. Oh, get problem. on with it, get on with it. All right, okay, yeah. okay boss. <laughs> get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. 
The forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. So what did you do after that? Did you have a prolonged rest? So so what I did was I I decided then that um, my family needed to be a much higher priority than they had been. Mm -hmm. And um, so I... Uh, First of all, I was asked to go up to do a research on a project we'd taken on in Belgo with the Aboriginal Health. Mm -hmm. And um, nurses had gone up there and the team wasn't quite settling well. And they asked me to go up and have a look at the situation and just see what I thought and write up a report. And then, yeah. So I went up to Belgo and discovered that exactly the dynamic that was going on in the hospice team was exactly what was going on here in the with uh, the team going up dedicated nurses but who all had different ideas about what was the ideal and if you don't negotiate ideals it creates a team that's got a tyranny on top of it and so so it was exactly the same thing mm-hmm. and and then of course they said um it's not us it's your organisation that's so bad at arranging this. so <laughs> <laughs> It's your fault. So I remember the first morning I was going to work with them, I walked down and I said, um, I said, look, I'll tell you what we're going to do today. We're going to do the uh, the holiday roster. That's where I'd like to start. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, they said, okay, we, we will do that. Yes. <laughs> so, so we did the holiday roster and sorted out the, the study periods and mm. all that and then tried to work with them around what their ideals each were. One said it was about the culture of the Aborigines and absorbing the, the health care into that culture. The other set is about a neat and tidy clinic and having things top, you know, really good quality care mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. And, and what we had to do was to say to them, listen, you need to negotiate that or you're going to kill each other, right. you know, and and just, yeah, yeah, work around it. So I did that and came back down and I thought, I'm still very tired. So mm-hmm. And also... <laughs> I've discovered I was fretting away from my family at that right, point, which had never right. happened to me before. So, so yeah. who was in your family at this stage? Because there were nine of us, remember? Right, there were yes. originally nine. Yes. And, um, and this was the youngest brother. Right. And and it kind of, um, yeah, to this day, I don't know whether it was suicide or murder or what it was, but it was a violent death. Mm. And, and I think when you get close to that, what it says to you is, is um, this stuff is not very far away from me or my family. No, that's right. Um, 
it, maybe there'll be another one. You know, mm. you kind of you, mm. you you don't have a sense that oh, it's all those other people that happens to. That's right. You know, it's kind of like it's me. Mm. I look back on it now. I think it was the greatest, um, the richest experience I've ever lived through in terms of what it helped me about understanding other people for later on because it became very important later. Um, but but at the time, oh, it was agony, you know? It was yes. agony, and yes. it was agony for the whole family. Mm. And what happens with that is people become very raw, and and you have to work really hard to hold relationships in a situation like that. Otherwise, you finish up, everybody's gone their own way, and there's no family left. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Yes. So, How many times of- do you hear, you know, when there's a horrific situation, a family, a yeah. child dies, that yeah. two or three years later the, the whole family splits right. up because they just... That's right. Yeah, because it's it's bleak house. It's It's bleak bleak house. house. Nobody can really help anybody else. Yeah, yeah. So you have to be, you have to work with it hard, hard. And um, so anyway, I took some time off and just said, okay, it's time for me to Mm -hmm. replenish and time to give time to them and my friends and have a normal life for a bit. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, um, so then I went to uni. You went to uni. (laughs) How old were you then? Uh, You're a mature age student. something, and 40. I'm sitting. I'm sitting out in the tribe with the 18 year olds. It was fun. It <laughs> fun. was fun. You uh, know. Did they call you Sister Margaret? No, I didn't know who I was. They didn't. They didn't care either. <laughs> 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 they just thought your your mum, their mum, their grandma. Who knows? Yeah, old enough to be their grandma. And yeah. they, um, but they were. What did you do? What did you do? What did you do? Yeah, because this was the conservative young generation who'd grown up with their hippie parents. Oh, that's right. The rebellion. I remember these people: the accountants, <laughs> the financial advisors. Oh, they're disgusting. Those kids. <laughs> you know, the Kellys of the world. Yeah, they, but go on. We won't talk about. They were them. fun on building my parents. So I used to say to them, "Listen." They've they've chose that life. It's not your worry. You get on with your own. Yeah, life, you, you, you make know, money, just, and you yeah, know. you just make money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, what degree did you do? Well, I did arts law. Right. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so you know yeah. all about defamation law. Yeah, right on it. Right. And Who are um, we going to defame on Radical yeah, Australia? Yeah. Anybody like to defame? Yeah. Well, copyright law was the thing that people were interested in going into. Not not in sports law and copyright law. They weren't too interested in all that other stuff. So, you know? It's and not much money in defamation. Not much money in anything else. But my interest was actually associations law and meetings law. That's right. really what I I wanted to help the small not for profits. And how that came about was in my final years of doing hospice work, I had sought to get an opinion from a large legal firm about the issue of um, nurses being subpoenaed for uh, any dying comments about the custody of children. Yes. And about being witnesses to wills mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff and where that fitted. And so I wrote off to ask for a legal opinion on it and gave a couple of case studies. I got back the letter and the bill. <laughs> <laughs> and the bill. No pro bono work. Oh, my goodness. For Sister Margaret. No. What was the bill? Oh. To, oh, a thousand thousand dollars in nineteen eighty for two pages. I, I couldn't know. believe it. Yeah, it's and got thought, be, it's got better now. I thought ten ten, ten grand time. ten grand a day for a cheap QC in court. Totally out of out of out yeah. of the range of what not for profits are like, you know. Yeah, so yeah. so I thought that's what I will do. Right. Is because I said my hearing wasn't marvellous either. I couldn't do court work. Right. So I thought I can do that. I can mm. do the work with the small not-for-profits, mm. the, the things that they need to know, the yep. things that they that they need to understand about dealing with mm. associations, companies, a little more thereof, you know, fundraising, whatever, mm. we mm. can deal with that. 
And uh, but by the time I graduated, they'd all merged into companies because the, right. the government yeah. was putting out tenders, not not grants of That's little right. bits of money. That's you right, know? tenders. Yeah, yeah they yeah. became government yeah, agencies. Yeah. So it was too late. But anyway, now, so, now mm. I'd like to thank you, Margaret. Thank you. It's very kind of you giving me this medal, but I don't think I deserve it. It's. <laughs> I think you might, Joe. No, and no, you know, no. Why I'm showing you that is because. Now, hang on, can I tell yeah. listeners because yeah. they can't see because yeah. of. Our That's producer, right. <laughs> she hasn't put cameras here. It's her fault. It's always yeah. Kelly's fault. Now I've got. Now I've seen. I've seen some of these before because I have okay. met people who've uh, had mm. this uh, bestowed upon them. Companions and officers of the Order of Australia and companions and commanders of British orders. Oh, what year was this? This was. I was actually a. Appointed an officer of the Order of Australia yeah. in 1990 as 1990. a young person, so yes. 30 years ago. That's a long time and, ago, yeah. And it was at the time, because um, I was grieving, but but it was something that I really appreciated, but also said at the time that that it really was a team effort and mm. it's rather difficult to accept something as one person when it's the team that deserves the... The honour, and so it feels to me like um, a bit like the AFL. Yes, that you could have uh, orders for particular best and fairest, or chief goal kicker, or whatever else. Mm. But ultimately, it's the team that wins the honour. Well, we all stand on yeah. the shoulders of everybody else. We do. You know, when I when we I do, talk absolutely. when I talk to patients and I make a brilliant diagnosis, which is very rare, yeah. I say to them, "Don't thank me. Look past my left shoulder." And there is a kilometre of bodies stacked yeah. up behind me, and That's it's right. the knowledge that I've gained from the mistakes That's I've right. made in the past That's that right. has given me the, the insight right. into what's going on yeah. now. None of us are an island. We may think we're an island, we may think we're brilliant, yeah. but we're not. We're yeah. all part and parcel, yeah. you know, of a community. Yeah. So, and I, I've just yeah. I've just read this, and I'm a little bit perplexed here, Margaret. I can't imagine you in this. It says. <laughs> You know what I'm going to say, don't you? I mean, I've actually seen the medal, but I've never seen the accompanying uh, little piece of paper about what you should wear when. Oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it says, With evening dress on occasions, when decorations are worn, gentlemen wear the senior neck badge, or the badge most appropriate to the occasion, and the miniatures of orders, decorations and medals mounted on a metal bar. Ladies, which I assume is you, Margaret, <laughs> ladies wear the senior shoulder badge or the badge most appropriate to the occasion suspended from a bow and worn below the miniatures of orders, decorations and medals mounted on a metal bar. And you look how shiny it is, Joe. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've never taken it out of the bloody case. You've never worn it, have you? <laughs> Well, give it to me. I'm happy to wear it. <laughs> now, you've never worn it. And it's like most people who get these type of honours. They put them in the... Uh, I had a patient one who's now dead like most of my patients. And he, he got an order of Australia for, you know, work he did. And he said, I've put it somewhere, Joe. I can't remember where it is. And I said, let's check the bottom drawer, Jack. And there it was. Because he was trying to... Work out where it was so he could yeah. actually leave it to the family when he yeah. died. And he yeah, he yeah. just put yeah. it away, and yeah. I assume you're exactly the same. You put That's it right. away. That's and you right. Forget. But it's something, I suppose, because I always felt really, really seriously it should have been a team award. 
you mm. know, it's kind of like, yes. and, and they say, oh, no, no, it's, it's about leadership too, but it's not just about leadership. It's about the others who got up at night time the same as me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. leaders yeah. encourage yeah. and they may um, organise a path, Yeah. but in order to get from A to B, yeah. other people do that. It's, the, it's yeah. what they can inspire in other people as far as a particular yeah. issue is, is yeah. concerned. And I think, I think the thing about your life, which is, I think, uh, yeah. important, is the fact that you've been able to inspire people in different, uh, yeah. in different types of activities and work yeah. over the years, that you haven't yeah. lost that drive. Yeah. Now, I did look into this last time, but I never finished my questioning. Just think of me as a Gestapo agent here. Now, because a lot of people are burnt out. As I said, there are meteorites and stars. Meteorites are going to change the world and they burn out very quickly. Stars continue to shine. So what has allowed you at your tender age of, what, 75? Yeah, 78. Oh, 78. My apologies. And I'm going to New Guinea in a month's time. Well, we'll talk about that too. So what what has allowed you... Yeah apart from good health, which is exceptionally important, yeah. allowed you to continue this type of work and have that inner drive to get up in the morning yeah. and, and want to assist people? Yeah. I, I think I think probably three things there. One is that I am blessed with astonishing physical health. You know, yeah, I, I reckon you could you, you could yep. you could yep. you could knock Very me to the strong. ground. I yeah. know. I, I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. I'm strong. I wouldn't yeah. want to cross paths with you in a dark alley. <laughs> That's number one. The mm. number two is that is that I think that growing up the eldest of a big family, that I learnt early the discipline of working, and uh, and at the same time you know understanding people a bit too because you can't just bully your younger brothers and sisters around and hope they'll obey you. They call me Miss Boss but they didn't take too much notice of it either. <laughs> but but um but I think I think it's about it's about being a natural risk taker but also somebody who follows through on the risk. I don't give up mm-hmm. very easily. Tenacity. The third thing for me is that I have a very strong faith and that for me I always have two things. One is the sense that when I go to bed at night time I give it back to God. Mm-hmm. I don't fret in the night about worrying about this, that, or the other. It goes back to God when I go to bed. Pick it up in the morning. Are you so physically exhausted at the end of the day that you just sleep straight yeah. through? God takes the lot. Mm-hmm. All the people I care about, everything mm-hmm. else, back to God. Mm-hmm. And then, and then for me, there's always also a sense that I don't work alone. In that, the sense I have a great sense that if you're doing good. You know, or trying to. You often mess up. You know, we think we're doing good, and we're doing the exact opposite. But, but most of the time, when we're trying to do something that is really trying to help my brother or my sister in the community, that that I have a great sense that there's a stream of goodness that we're part of. Now we don't understand who God is, or what God looks like, whatever else. But there's something that that I can, you know, a sense of the energy of goodness and that God is the origin of that. And so it's not my goodness emanating from me, but but in a sense I'm picking up what's a larger thing amongst the brotherhood and sisterhood of humankind, that there are many, many kind and loving people, you know, but beyond all that there's a kind of, there is a sense for me 
that there is a loving spirit. And mm. I, I, I suppose when I was in New Guinea and I, I'm with the people there where they have great fears of benevolent spirits, you know, onto the Sangumi man and all this stuff, that, that understood what a gift it is what a real gift it is to have a sense of a benevolence about life and the world and and that that's, for many people, a sense of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's something that, that, is, that is a great gift for us that I think we don't appreciate until it's taken from us. And, and we're faced with looking at evil and, and how dark that situation is. That that if we we we're more indifferent here in Australia, we're not mm. we're not into that kind of evil. No, we're not we're not sort of so, uh, in a sense, people of faith, whatever the religious background to that. But we're not people of faith in a way. Many of us, but but many are. But there's something about there's something about it is a gift. Mm. Do, you, th- say, do, you, do you think there is such a thing as innate evil, not just the evil we create for ourselves? Oh, this evil. Oh, this evil. Mm. I have seen it sometimes. Mm. And and uh, it's, uh, it's the place of no love. It's the place of no love. That's what evil is. And, and if you visit it, it's terrifying. You know, so, so that's hell. So, so, so all those children have been institutionalised in the past, where there was no love; it was just that's right, that's right. And we I see, was, and we see, and we see the product of that over yes, time, how yes, it affects human yes. beings. I was reading the mm. uh, Pope Francis's um, talk uh, in Canada with the Indigenous people. Yes. It runs for about three pages. Um, it's a profound apology, um, but it's not. Uh, and uh, it, it's not without his hope either, because mm. he really promotes the the dignity and the worth of Indigenous culture, Indigenous mm. people. Mm. Uh, it's well worth a read. But right. but yeah, the, the, for those children, they were weeping. Yes, you know, they were weeping. The people the, were weeping. The, the that's right. And the, that's and right. The and depth these, these of were, suffering. And these were adults in their 70s and 80s that had survived yeah. that upbringing. Yeah. Now, now, getting back to your trip to uh, New Guinea. Yeah. Which you've got in the in the yeah. wings, shouldn't you be looking for a nursing home bed at seventy eight? <laughs> Not going to New Guinea on some you know, flim flam trip. You know, Joe. One thing taught me that lockdown, yes. that compulsory lockdown, is yeah. I never, <laughs> never want to sit home. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Dan, I am so grateful to you. <laughs> I never, never now want to go home and look after flowers and, and, and read books. And <laughs> yeah, no, there is a limit, isn't there, to looking after flowers. I grow garlic. There is a limit. So what are you going to do in, your, in uh, Papua New Guinea? Uh, what we're doing is I'm going up. In the first week, I'm going up with our honorary architect, Enza Angelucci, who's a wonderful mm-hmm. woman. Mm-hmm. Enza has a master's in, in um, like. Um, architecture mm-hmm. and she's coming up to look at the buildings we've put or that the people have put up we've paid for the materials people have put up and she's studying the the use of western materials or modern materials with their traditional sense of design mm-hmm. and but more importantly their traditional social movement mm-hmm. so she's very into where doorways should be to promote the the movement of people through the building right. and 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 how children they're incorporated into that and those kinds of things. So she's coming up with me for a week, 
And then when she goes, I'm staying on because we're developing a program inside the four cookhouses up there, which are in four different provinces. So where's up there? Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, there are four different provinces. Mm-hmm. So we're in Western Highlands, Southern Highlands, Enga and Simbu, mm-hmm. uh, in the four across the main four mm-hmm. provinces across mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. highlands of New Guinea. Right. And we're trying to set up like a satellite model, a lighthouse model. And so what we're looking at is now what the women want to learn in each of those centres that will give them a sense of greater sense of self-worth. So it may be about their clothing or or whatever else or the the kind of hobbies they like to do. And also what they might like to do is the cottage industry to make some money for themselves Mm -hmm. and to try to help them with that. But at the moment what's happening is they really want to talk. They want to share uh, the difficulties and the challenges they're facing and then come on to what they want to learn. So it's about going up listening to that with Teresa, who's our local coordinator, mm-hmm. and seeing what resources we need to pour into that program to help those women. Mm-hmm. Because the people in the village, the women in the village, are um, they're a long way behind the women in the townships who have jobs. Um, they have very little. They sit all day on a road selling their vegetables and they might get a few kina at the end of the day um, and that will go for school money for the children. Um, They don't have much for themselves at all. So Mm -hmm. what we want to do is look at how we can support them and how we can support village life so that it doesn't break down. and they all yeah. So people, you don't get this huge migration to the the slums around the cities. That's right. What happened everywhere else in the world, England, Dublin, anywhere you want to mention it, people migrated away from the urban area. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. that that would be destroying their culture, I think, if if that happened. I understand that within about 15 years that 70% of the world's population which will be about yeah. 6 billion will be living in yeah. these monstrosities yeah. that we live in. So how many years are you going to devote to this? Uh, I, I, well, I, I was going to think about retiring at 80, but that's not going to happen. So. <laughs> 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 we'll keep going. I, I don't know if you Why, 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 why should age. you retire at 80 it's, it's, if, you, if you've got st- – if you feel st- – You've got the strength. It's got nothing to do with age. No, it's everything about no. your physical well-being. It is your physical yeah. well-being. Why should you? Why should people yeah. retire at eighty? I mean, I, that's right. When I was forty, I was going to retire at sixty, and now I'm seventy, and I'm thinking yeah. like you. Yeah. I, you know, I'd like to. Yeah. Well, I'm going to retire as a doctor when I reach fifty years in, yeah. in the profession, yeah. but. I'm not going to retire from life. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not like these young people, you know. They, right, right. Like Kelly yeah. over there, they, yeah. they, they retire. Yeah. They'd like to retire at 22. That's right. But we're, <laughs> you know, there are 90 year olds who we've got the benefit of having mm. had good food, good mm. medical care, right. good everything, and 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 um, a public health system and a public, and a public education system, system that That's people right. forget. Exactly a universal. Right. Community, a social yeah. security system. Yeah. Obviously, there are problems in each of them. Yeah. But most people around the world don't actually have that. Yeah. Because Come a bit closer yeah. to your mic, um, yeah. Margaret. Come yeah. a bit closer to your microphone. Oh, yes, I will. Yeah. 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 yeah, always listen. Always listen, always right. listen to That's her. Right. You know, so look, my granny was still, she was still working when she was 78, and yeah. she's two generations back. That's right. So, so what are we worrying about in the 80s? You know, we can, we can work on. That's right. And um, mm. I actually think this is great, this push now to say that um, pensioners might be able to earn a bit more and work on yeah. if they want to. If, if they, they want, want to. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good now, uh, have you... Are you a member of the DFO club? Am I? A member of the DFO club. 
<laughs> What's that do? No, no, no. It's something that all anybody who gets to the ripe old age of 70 joins, whether oh. we like it or not. It's yeah. not like uh, Groucho Marx said, you know, I won't join you know, any club that will have me. It's an automatic inclusion, oh. and it's the most dangerous club in the universe. It's the DFO club, the Don't Fall over oh, club <laughs> because we trip over things and Kelly can tell you stories about me tripping over in the studio and we break things and we die. Yeah. So, well, are you a member? No, because I, I tell you exactly what I'm doing at the moment is I'm actually, because my preparation for going up to New Guinea, yes. part of that is is to make sure that you've got good strength. So I'm mm. actually with a physiotherapist at the moment mm. doing leg strengthening exercises. Right, so right. unless you better come with me. <laughs> no, no, Kelly Kelly does all my exercising for me because she's, she's, she's a junkie. I'm a she's, very active person. Yeah. She's an active person. She does enough for two yeah. of us and I've decided that I don't yeah. need to exercise because yeah, she does so enough we, of yes. three of us. She's, yes, yes, she's so. on her bike. She does yoga, oh, meditation, you know, anything else oh, that we've missed that's out? Right. Bit of Pilates, bit of yeah. cardio, bit of this, bit, yeah. of, bit of that right. variety. You've got to keep, keep it interesting. Keep it up. Keep that's it right. up. It, it'll serve you in good strength yeah, later I, on. Now I've, I'm probably the strongest and fittest I've been in my life and I'm yep. in my 40s. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be right. And yeah. you peak at about 45, so keep it up. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you've got the good advice from the yeah. master. Yes, that's right. And, and I look back, I think probably because we did a really tough nursing. You're mm. running all day that's and right. long, long shifts. You know, we, yeah. we did 12 hour shifts. That's and, right. mm. and, and I look back on that and I think I'm sure that is part of the reason why um, you retain a fitness later on mm. if you've really had to be a worker. Mm. And um, but you know that's not to say. Look, there's plenty of people who've used their brains all all their all their lives, and they've got heads that work much better than mine. But but um, you know, but it, it's what's the point of having a good head yeah. if your body's failing? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I think Kelly's right. She's right. I should do some exercise. Yeah, I'll think yeah. about it. It's a lose it or use it, isn't it? Really? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to ask. Well, that was, that's a good final yeah. thing. But I'm going to ask you something yeah. because you're 78. You've done extraordinary things in your life. Yeah. You're still a an active uh, nun. You've got an AO. What advice do you have for us losers out there in the world? Ah, (laughs) there aren't any. There aren't any. Best comeback I've had. There aren't any. Well, what advice have you got for us who want to, who want to do something with our lives? Oh, I I think, I think, you know what the best advice I could give is is what I learnt in the first month of doing hospice work, doing the palliative care, is if you want to do something, get on with it. When I when I started the palliative care, in the first two months of watching people just die, 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 I said to myself, I have never been to Alice Springs, I have never seen the rock, I am going. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and I made about three wishes for myself that said, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it soon. Because if you if you can live well, you die well. So so it's you meet so many people who want to do something, but they've put it off. Don't put it off. Do it. You know, um, believe in yourself enough to to get on with. If you can see something that the world needs that you can do, or even if you don't think you can do it, but you want to do it, do it. Mm. Somebody will help you. I think yeah. because of the legal work you did that you should sue 
this company, this multinational corporation, that slogan is just do it. You were doing it before they actually followed the slogan. They've stolen it off you. They've stolen off me. I and, and, and I think, and <laughs> I think, and I think yeah. that's evil on their part. That's pure yeah. evil. Just yeah. do it. It's a good advice. It's what I like to do. Yeah. Sister Margaret Ryan, AO, uh, Australian Treasure. Thank you very much for coming to the studio. It's been a pleasure crossing swords. Mm -hmm. And maybe when you come back and you've got some interesting stories, we'll bring you back into the studio. Why not? You're one of the, you know, you're an example of what people can do. And that's the problem. Most people are resigned to the fact that they can't do anything. But we can do lots if we want to. can. Fat Chat, a new show joining the 3CR Radical Radio Wednesday Hometime team at 6pm. Fat Chat will present the voices of self-advocates with cognitive disabilities. Voice at the Table, VAT, provides practical information to ensure people with cognitive disabilities have a real and equal voice at the table. Welcome, I'm Warren. I'm a graduate of the Voice at the Table training and presenter of the VAT Chat podcast. VAT Chat presents self-advocates in their own words and voice, showcasing how self-advocates are changing their world. Joining the 3CR Wednesday Hometime family from the 24th of August at 6pm and the 4th Wednesday of every month after that. 3CR, the voice of your community. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.